it's a competition clinching shot. The LET Golf Podcast, the official podcast of the Ladies European Tour. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the LET Golf Podcast, the exclusive podcast of the Ladies European Tour, where each week we take you inside the ropes to chat to the stars of the show. I'm George Cooper and joining me today are two people who know just a little bit about the LET. As always, I've got media official Nicola Kenton. Nicola, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you, George. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. And we're also delighted to be joined by former LET player, turn presenter, analyst, and one of the voices of Sky Sports, Sophie Walker. Sophie, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, back from Singapore, just about recovered from the jet lag and back to normality. Yeah, sounds good. We'll uh, we'll get on to your career in just a minute, sort of inside and outside of the ropes. But first things first, how are you enjoying the season? Loving it. However, um, my average travel day seems to be 21 hours. The Ladies European Tour does not go to Europe in the winter. We follow the sunshine. So um, I've been to Africa and Asia. It's been amazing. Um, Absolutely incredible. But those travel days in economy, tough, very tough. (laughs) <laughs> well you got a nice what is it six seven week break now so you can you can put your feet up a little bit i guess right yeah exactly um it's one of those things i still have that feeling of like when i played golf on tour you have that urge to come back home and then you get back home and after a few days you're like oh when am i going away again next um yeah you do love being part of the circus and i'm pleased to still be a part of it but being at home for a couple of weeks, obviously there's a couple of majors to look forward to. So I'll be watching them on the television, Easter. So I'll be smashing all the Easter eggs and, and just getting back to sleeping in my own bed, which is, oh, I miss that. A cup of tea in bed, there is nothing better. Yeah, can't beat it. Right, so first thing, first, we are going to sort of do a little, I guess we've got this mini break now in the season, haven't we? So we're going to do a a little wrap, six events uh, in the history books, of course. Um, what have you made it all so far, Sophie? Well, like I said, we've, we've travelled the world. Um, I've really enjoyed seeing who's next. And I've found this over the last few years. Um, obviously, Emily Pedersen dominated. Then we had um, Gino. And we thought, well, who is going to be better than Titican, you know, we said, oh, she's going to be world number one. We lost her after a season to the LPGA Tour. And then the next thing you know, we've got Lynn Grant and Maya Stark. and We've had the most incredible year last year. And then you think, well, who's coming through next? And that's what I've really enjoyed seeing. We've got Lily Mae Humphreys, obviously being English. I was really pleased to see her get back. You know, she had a year of kind of real struggles on the Ladies European Tour last year. So that's great that she's got in the winner's circle. Aditi Ashok, somebody who was, you know, a star on the LET, once again, obviously totally understand, goes to the LPGA and then comes back and dominates here early season. So that's been good. And then in Singapore, the little French rocket. I think we forgot about Pauline. Um, When she won, it was the tournament that we saw Lynn Grant and Maya Stark playing for the first time. So our focus suddenly went that way. And actually, she was amazing in Singapore. Eight birdies in the last 10 holes to, to just smash it and, and beat Lydia Ko, Danielle Kang. That's what I like. I like to see who's next. But we do produce players that go on to greatness. When I was on tour, there's Amy Yang area Jitanagan and they you know went on to to play really well obviously area went on to be world number one and and that's what for me that's what I enjoy watching yeah definitely um and you mentioned Pauline there um and how sort of she seemed to sneak up on that tournament but I guess she could be one to also sneak up now on the on the Solheim Cup team yeah it's an interesting one about like sneaking up because some people when you commentate on LPGA tour you commentate on LPGA and you forget I was watching um at the weekend and the commentator said georgia hall hasn't won in two years and it's like well she has and it's the same on the let sometimes you forget where they've been and you can you know you can go oh we've we've not seen her around but that's because she's been applying the trade on the lpga and the fact that she kept her tour card as a rookie that's really good going and me and richard was on the putting green before they went out for the final round and we always go, who do you think is going to win? And both of us picked Pauline because 
her mannerisms she had a coach there with her her mum was there boyfriend on the bag like she does look the real deal when you watch her on the putting green the methods that she uses she's not just got three balls and she's whacking them around she really is training and i'm not sure this year to get in the solheim is a huge ask um because it's only a few months away but we are back to back which we could maybe see a slight change in the guard i'm not sure when that's going to happen we've seen it with the Ryder cup in europe um the older statesman leaving maybe we'll see it in the, these next two years with the european female team yeah definitely i mean she hits it a lot further than i thought as well it's sort of a she's like <laughs> she's a bit of a bomber isn't she i think like on the inside hits it far yeah she does well just a little insight for you she's trained by a like mma kind of fighter so that's that's a recent um addition to the team and i think he's doing a little bit of work with a few of the french players so maybe you know a bit like mcgregor i don't know she's got that walk and she <laughs> yeah has got a bit of a swagger uh, good stuff and we'll come back uh to the start of the season obviously aditi's ridiculous hot streak wasn't it really um what did, what did you make of her performances at the beginning of the season well i played golf with aditi when she first came out on tour and her strength was the fact that she was very good at getting the ball pin high when amateurs play golf if you mark down how many times you were pin high in a round it might only be once whereas aditi as similar to lydia ko in that sense that she's very good at her distances however the length was a bit of an issue but she was only a youngster when she came on top so now she seems to have addressed that and, and got a touch longer so instead of hitting six irons into par fours it's now eight irons obviously the proximity to the hole gets better because of that because she's closer but she's certainly a player that you used to think would suit certain courses i.e kenya but then to see her do well on other courses that's that's kind of the next step for me morocco kenya right up her street then you see her go well in saudi and you think oh i wouldn't really put her down as that that was a bit of a bomber's course in my eyes but when you're on a hot streak you play well anywhere you ride that wave and i think maybe with aditi she just has to manage a schedule because she can go away for seven months at a time from india without going home and, and that's tough for anybody even when you're like when you are as young as her like it's just too much golf really just too much being away from home yeah definitely we'll have to see how that goes because she's obviously still leading the the race to costa del sol quite comfortably at the minute and a player sort of breathing down her neck as well um so yeah it's all it's all good stuff so we'll, we'll see how she goes and um, you mentioned obviously saudi there and asley we saw you out there we all had a very good time uh how great was it just to be part of that event and obviously we had the the record-breaking purse you know we had world number one lydia cohen town you know, it was, a, it was a great weekend. I know we all enjoyed it, but but how 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 good was it to be a part of that? I think for me that the significance was, you know, the big names, world golfers coming over. We know why they come over. Like it's the money. The money was unbelievable, five million dollars prize fund. But it's then what they saw when they came over. They saw the LET in a different light, and they saw the standard of golf, the standard of golf course facilities the difference in how it's run. And I think that led to the likes of Lydia Ko and Daniel Kango. And I'll tell you, I quite fancy Singapore now. That's that's quite important. I don't want to see them just come over once. I want to see them come over a handful of times. And now we can demonstrate on the LET that we have stepped up. So I think that was that was very important. And then to see a world when the world number one wins your event, that that helps everything helps when when good players that win win the, the spotlight is always on that tournament and i think you know we just we deserved we deserved that and the event deserved that moving on to the aramco team series they're all run exceptionally well and it was a pleasure to see so many big names play in a and well a normal ladies european tour event not in prize money but in terms of it wasn't co-sanctioned and you mentioned that sort of shift there in, I guess, mindset from some of the LPGA players and, you know, some of the, the world's best towards our field, towards our event. Is that something that you've sort of noticed in the last few years or, you know, how, how, how do you assess that gradual shift? Look, there's no hiding that they really like coming back to play in Europe, on the Leisure European Tour. 
uh, Ty Tiscombe said it in an interview. I love coming back here. Ash Buhai grew up playing L.E.T. They do enjoy coming back and experiencing um, different golf courses, different places, the feel of the L.E.T., no doubt. The reason they're on the LPGA is because, you know, that's the the world tour, the best players in the world, the money, etc. They would like to come back a little bit more. And I do think the players that aren't American would like to play more worldwide. And if we can provide that for them, then I think it's only winning. Yeah, definitely. Nicely put. And looking ahead then to the rest of the season, I know we've only had six events, but is there anyone that you think, yeah, they they could come through? Or is there perhaps a rookie that's impressed you? Or how do you look ahead to the rest of the season? Is there anyone you think, yeah, they could be on the winning circle soon? I think Kiara Neuer, obviously she did win last year, but I I do expect her to to move on from that. I don't think it's it was lucky. <laughs> She's very good. I mean, the longest hitter on our tour, her and Anne Van Dam are, are side by side and Pierre Babnik as well. I expect her to, to challenge more often and, and maybe capture her second title. April was cool. I enjoyed watching April. Um yeah, really, really good watch another Asian player that will be inspired by Gino. And I think we'll see more Thai players come through because of, well, obviously we had Gino and, and area. So those two for me, um, it's still early. It is still really early. Six events, was, there's a long way to go. And we'll see, you know, we won't see the likes of Maya Stark until the summer. So those um, now that have become world players, they're going to be playing LPGA for the foreseeable future. So there is an opportunity for somebody that is based on the L.E.T. to come through. Yeah, for sure. It's exciting times. And you mentioned just Maya there. Just quickly, I know she obviously won in Morocco in a one and only event so far on the L.E.T., but like, how far do you think someone like Maya Stark can go? I, I, you know, there's, there's a few players that excite me about watching. I used to love playing with Caroline Headwell, and I've said this many times, she reminds me so much of her. Um, I teach a, a young girl, Grace, 14-year-old, and her favourite player is Maya Stark. She's become her favourite player in like a year and a half. And the reason that she w- likes her so much is because the positiveness and the, the the aggression that she sees her playing golf, that's what Grace doesn't have, and she wants that. And I think that's brilliant that somebody in just a short space of time can capture um a 14 year old's imagination to say oh yeah i i really admire what she does and that's an area of my game that i need to improve and i'm going to try and copy maya i I think the fact that there's two of them her and lynn just everything's better in pairs right if you look at tennis nadal needs federer everybody needs somebody to go against and those two obviously a great friendship and the way they do it is is brilliant both of them Everyone will admire, but you'll have your favourite, depending on what type of style you like to watch. And and I think they'll both, you know, they're already at the top, but I can only see them both going higher and higher. Yeah, absolutely. It's exciting times ahead. I love as well Maya's mindset, how she's always not beating herself up, but it's always like, I, I know I can play better. I know I can play better. You know, she shoots seven, eight, nine under, whatever. And she's still like, oh, something's at the back of her mind that, I, I, you know, I could be better. I can improve. And for me, that's, I look at that and just think, you know, you know there's no limit is there to to the success that she can succeed so yeah it's 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 good to see for sure yeah i like her honesty as well she will um you know she'll admit when things aren't going well or when she hasn't done something to the best of her abilities and she'll try and fix it she isn't um yeah a lot of players are quite that don't give you much whereas whereas she really doesn't and from you know commentator's point of view that's excellent yeah, it's like the dream. Right, that's enough about the current crop of uh, L.E.T. stars, Sophie, because I'm going to pass you over to Nicola and she's going to pick your brains about your own career, like I say, both on and off the course. Yeah, as George said, we're going to take you down your memory lane of your own golfing journey. <laughs> so, Sophie, how did you get into the game of golf? How old were you and what are your early memories from that? My dad played. He was the handicap secretary at Cleethorpe's Golf Club. So he'd be there at the weekends marking all the scorecards after he'd played his round of golf. And on a Saturday, I'd just go down with him, a bar of chocolate, can of Coke, sit with him next to the computer and then look out at the putting green. I'd be like, 
you know, got to the point where it's like, can I have a go? So I had like a putter, went on the putting green, the pro uh, Eric Sharp cut me down an eight iron. So I would have probably been about five or six then. And I had a couple of lessons um, over that time, but you couldn't join the golf club till you were 10 years old. And then at 10 years old, I joined and loads, loads of my mates from school played. It was, I think it was £90 a year to be a member. So it was the cheapest babysitting anybody could ever have. And we all just hung out. There was like a hundred juniors. We were so fortunate. Not many girls, but at that age, it, it doesn't really matter that at 10, 11 years old. And we just play golf all day, every day. Cleethorpe's Golf Club was a very flat golf course. So we could play 36 in a day without blinking, have a bowl of chips, uh, halfway around and go again so that that was it really that was how most of my summers were spent from the age of 10 and 11. And you mentioned there obviously one a few girls but I'm sure loads of children there was it like a really social thing for you to be able to do and make new friends every weekend? Yeah it was and it was you know there was people from my school there but then there was people that were older than me so you were always mixing with people three four years older than you I think that was good for your maturity of it and yeah no look there wasn't many girls i always i always say this as a guy called remy and i always say you're one of the reasons i stayed playing golf because remy was the cool kid at school and remy played golf and at the time in the 90s golf wasn't i don't think it's mega cool now but it's definitely better and the fact that he played meant that i'd be like well he plays so everything's good in the world you know you can't not that i'd be bullied but it, it just made everything a bit easier that, that he played and I still see him now and, and just always say if it wasn't for you I'm not sure I'd still be playing. Going off on that so kind of when you started to play more often when did you kind of think of oh, golf something that I'm pretty good at and I could do as a career? When I was 15 I I think I won nearly every event I entered other than the British girls. I won the English girls at 15 at Sheringham and that was my GCSE year. So from there on out, I thought, yeah, maybe maybe I could give this a go. And that's when I started to represent England and Great Britain, stuff like that. And when you were growing up, who were your role models? Obviously, you mentioned Remy there, being, being <laughs> an influence. That, <laughs> being an influence, but um, was there anyone that you looked up to in the wider game and you kind of watched on TV or growing up being like, yeah, I want to be like them? I'm prime tiger prime tiger era 97 the masters the first masters i remember was the nick faldo one i watched it with my dad but then 97 was was the the year where tiger won and from there on out i had the tightless golf bag i had the scotty cameron putter wanted like nike clothes everything needed to be like tiger um so he was quite well, still is obviously really significant and then there wasn't much golf women's women's golf on television there was uh the the women's open which was the weetabix and really the only way you could watch that is if you actually went there i never felt like i saw it too much on the television there was a lack of women's golf so annika became significant when i became good at golf i started looking more into the world of golf and who was great and then that's where annika came along and when I, I used to go and watch the um, the Weetabix and seek her out and just see what she did. So she mm -hmm. she was an inspiration of where I needed to be if I was a pro golfer or an elite golfer. So I'd just find her on the putting green and just watch all her drills. She was coached by Henry Rice back then. So I would seek all his putting aids. Then I'd go watch her on the driving range, see how she warmed up. So that was more of an inspiration of being an elite golfer but tiger was the the one when i was younger and every english golfer will always say laura davis i just wish she was on television more she was more of a role model that i never saw like you you heard about laura davis she was i don't know like something that i i never witnessed and that was annoying like now you think oh you just turn the tv on and there's charlie hall or georgia hall obviously if you're english that just wasn't the case when I was young. Thankfully, it's changed. And you mentioned they're like seeking out in terms of what other people are doing. 
now lots of players kind of watch back highlights on YouTube and, you know, go through that thing. Were you buying, you know, videos and <laughs> that kind of thing, watching old tapes and reruns of footage from other players? Do you know what? My video selection was very much football associated, Nicola. I had <laughs> um, Ryan Giggs soccer skills. I had the Liverpool um, trilogy of all their all their foot. So it was more that uh, when it came to golf, golf magazines were quite a thing. I was quite into my golf magazines and then my coach at the time eric sharp he was a massive ben hogan fan so he would like get the books out and show me all of that but my yeah i digested maybe women's golf more in there was like lady golfer and women's and golf and stuff so you, you'd get those magazines because we weren't there was no female representation in golf monthly i think it was only a couple of weeks ago that the first female was on the front cover of the golf monthly magazine in 18 years that makes sense with the difference of resources but as such a football fan did you kind of take the skills that you can learn from other sports and implement them into your golf i think so um i've got really good hand eye i can pick up most most um sports and i do think that certainly helps with my putting uh, and chipping the ability to to land the ball where I wanted to be. And I was always pretty good at adapting to, to greens. I could just walk on a green and, and feel feel the, the, the pace pretty easy. Um, and then I was a swimmer and swimming's pretty good for obviously overall aerobic capabilities, but also mental strength that up and down, up and down um, and trying to get through that. I think Anne Van Dam and Alice Hewson were swimmers. And you can definitely see it in, in Alice Hewson, that ability to just keep on going. So I think that that's always quite good if if you are a swing, swimmer as a youngster. As a former swimmer, yes, I agree with that. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of mental resilience and, you know, just having to get on with it being, as you say, going up and down in that pool and just doing your own exercises, training something within you. Yeah, that just that pain, isn't it? And then you wait for yeah. the bell, you get that bell ring and you think, oh, just one more. Nearly then. there. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but going back to English girls champion and achieving that at the age that you did, talk us through your memories of that. What What do you remember from that week? I remember going to Sheringham, which was a Lynx golf course. I went with me and my mum and my mum's friend. And my mum wasn't much of a golfer. She's just started golf, actually, at 70 years old, finally. But she never used to come to the club. She, like, dropped me off and off I'd go and, and I would look around and everyone else's parents were watching every shot. You weren't allowed to caddy, um, parents weren't allowed to caddy, but they they lived and breathed everything. And I remember just thinking, well, I wouldn't want my mum here all the time. Like, I'm all right by myself. So it was very much, I just got on with it. And I wouldn't have, I wouldn't say I was particularly favorite for it, um, but I'd been playing really well and I, and I grew up by the coast. So Lynx golf was, was kind of in my blood. I just just kept chipping away and just kept knocking out player after player. I think I had a big win in the semi-finals, and then in the final there was me and a girl called Becky Wood, who actually now I work with at England Golf, and we were both that type of player that was on the borderline of England Golf, but none of us was particularly expected to play uh, to win it, the English girls, and and I just thought, well, you're not expected to win it, I'm not expected to win it, but this is an opportunity now. Um, I've kind of beaten the people that you know were supposedly better than me I think I won on the I think I was one up going down the last and then we either parred or, or, or either one two up or one up I remember the trophy massive really great trophy and um yeah you got to take it home for the entire year so that's pretty cool but that that was quite significant and then you look sat looking at the names written on it and I think I think when you when you watch anybody that wins um, like for instance, when we watch whoever wins the, the women's open this year and the men's open, it's that look as they hold it up, they look down and they look at the names and that is so significant. And that's why opens and, and English girls and British and that, that they're so important because you look at those names and that's where you go, oh, yeah, I remember them. I remember watching them or I remember wanting to be them. And, that, and that's what I thought. I thought, oh, there's some good names on there. <laughs> Very nice. And as you said, you kind of got more into the England setup after winning that. And then how did you come about the 
decision to turn pro? What was, you know, navigating those last kind of years of junior amateur career? Well, I went to university, but didn't go to America. Uh, I went to Loughborough in England, which was at the time, not a few players were going to America, but not loads. And a lot were just turning pro straight out of school. I was advised by my parents not to, to just get, get a degree. So I went to Loughborough, had a very good time there, met some of like my best friends there. And I turned pro because there was nothing else left for me to do, really. I'd, I'd done everything in the amateur game. I ticked all the boxes and I looked around at the people that were turning pro. You know, I'm the era of kind of Carlotta Zaganda, Azahada Munoz, Caroline Masson, Norquith, all those lot and everyone else. You know, we were all turning pro. So it was just, that's what you did. It was like when you move from junior to amateur and then you move from amateur to pro, it just seemed quite just the normal transition. What I would say is the lack of information out there was frightening for turning pro. I remember, not much is on television. Emails, like websites and that are terrible. And you just go in, right, okay, so I'll just enter this, shall I? And then go to Spain and see what happens. And then when, yeah, it was... When you think about it now, God, I just signed up and gave it a go. Completely different world from the, the rookies now who kind of have college experience, very different. Everything's done. As you say, the development of technology and the Internet over the past 15, 20 years has been ridiculous in terms of the resources that you can gain. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, like the booking of flights and the hotel rooms, etc., I'd never really had a caddy, so I'm like, said to my mate, do you want to come and caddy for me? It was, yeah, like crazy. So you obviously turn pro and then you end up on the LET. Talk to, like, how does that process happen for someone that could be completely alien? Like, how how do you end up on the LET from that process from turning pro to then joining the LET? Well, there's Q School. So Q School happens every single year. So mine was at La Cala in Spain, which... Many of you listening to this podcast probably holidayed in La Cala Resort, but you've always drove a golf cart. You imagine walking that. So it was five rounds, a couple of practice rounds. So it was seven days of walking La Cala, which is an absolute beast. And to play it with a scorecard in your hand, I mean, that is harsh, harsh at best, because there's ravines everywhere. But I do remember coming down the 18th and I was well inside the top 10. And I just could quite, I could enjoy the walk, really. But Q School is is a horrible place to be, really. Um, but it's better to be there when you're looking to the future of your career rather than looking back and trying to go back and try and get your status for the tour again. Yeah, that, that was going to be my next question. Like, was that, I guess it's less gruelling if you're going in with perhaps less pressure, just, you know, I'm going to give this a stab, going to give this a go, um, which sounds like that was sort of how it was for you first time. Yeah and no, because I felt like I'd completed amateur golf. I didn't want to go back there. You know, the last thing I wanted to do was go up to Troon in April and play the Helen home. Um, no offence to April in Scotland, but it is miserable. I'd much prefer April in Tenerife where I did start. And the expectations were, well, you know, you're the best golfer in England. You, at, you know, amateur level, you need to go and get your tour card. So there was there was that pressure of starting again somewhere new. But saying that, George, I was playing well. You know, I was going to Q School playing well. If you have lost your tour card as a pro, the chances are you've not been playing well for a, a whole season. So to try and find a little bit of form then it is difficult. Yeah, I can imagine. And then you make it onto the LET. Just talk to me about the climate of the tour and what it was like, what it was like then when you joined. It was pretty good when I joined. I think we had, I want to say, 28 events. It was it was busy, thriving. It started in Australia, which I didn't get into, and then we started in Tenerife. And it was just one after another after another. I remember Beatrice Riccaro playing 11 events in a row. And we were like, whoa, because she'd got into Evian and the British. So, you know, it was it was. The money was good in places like we went to Switzerland and the prize money was half a million. And that was in 2007, eight. So Italy was the same. 
big sponsors, you know, Deutsche Bank, BMW. And it was it was going all right. Alex was in charge. Um, so obviously she left and came back. And then 2000, when was the recession that hit? Was it 2010? You, you're probably too young to remember you two. But 2010, eight, eight, right. Then things changed massively. Um, we were sponsored by airlines and banks and cars. And they all really struggled. So, so did we. And then it, it dropped down. I mean, at one point we, we were playing, um, I reckon, no more than 14 events a year in 2010, 11. Like it went in peaks and troughs, really. But when I started, it, it was really good, like really good. And you personally, how did you sort of adapt to life on the road? Pretty good. I should have won my first event. Shot a load in the final round and my best mate, Nicky Garrett, ended up winning. Then the second week, we went to Spain and it was Sergio Garcia's course in Valencia. And a bunch of us got gastro and we were so poorly. And that was a horrible place, like being away from home, paying to be there, not earning any money, just feeling horrendous. And, and that knocked me for six, really, because I think if I'd have played in that, I'd have just kept going and go, I had a good year, like, a, you know, kept my tour card easily. But it was just such a difference between two weeks, one competing to win and then the next, like, just not being able to leave the, the hotel room and, and seeing how much. So I think my mum came to the one in Tenerife, I had a load of friends there because it was Tenerife, I had a great week. Next week, by myself, everything kind of went wrong. And it just shows you the, the, the difference of what, what can happen in a couple of weeks. Yeah, the fine margins for sure. And who were sort of, who are your friends on tour then? Who are your travel buddies? Who are the girls that, that got you through these times and that who you room with or who you travelled with? Because I always hear how much, you know, it's it's such a camaraderie and it's such a great spirit on the LET. So go on, spill the beans. Who are your, who are your pals? George, we had a good time early on. Remember, <laughs> like, like, mobile phones weren't a big deal. Facebook was nearly, well, it's like Facebook was there, but you'd say, are you allowed to be tagged in this or not? So, um, and then we were playing week in, week out. So my first year on tour, I never used to come home. Like if we'd finish on a Sunday and say we're in Holland and we're going to the Czech Republic, I just used to go to the Czech Republic. So we'd have a couple of days, Monday, Tuesday, being able to see Prague or see Amsterdam or see Paris. And that's what we did. We did you know, I didn't go home to see my coach. Like, duh, no, I'm off to like see the world. So my travel buddies ended up being like non-English people because I thought, yeah, I want to stay out. I don't want to go back. So there was Nikki Garrett, who was Australian. Ash Buhai, who was South African. It was, yeah, it was it was those type of people. A couple of like Scots, Lynn Kenny, Claire Queen, who have, have since retired. Yeah, I, I thought oh, I'm going to be like still hanging around with all my GB and I lot, but it wasn't. Um, Henny, Henny hung out with, had some had a great night out in Ireland with Henny once. <laughs> but it was, it was, I don't know, it was different because of that. That's the way it was. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like we were going out getting really drunk or anything. Odd times, like a Sunday night was always a, a quite a nice night out. Flick Johnson, when she won in Tenerife, that was a good one. But we just, I don't know, we just travelled a little bit more in the sense of seeing where we were, where we were. And sometimes I think, like now, I think to the players, just go out one night, like just see it. Um, and in Singapore, Manon Roy, Ellie Gibbons, Christine Wolf, Liz Young, they were going out every night somewhere in Singapore to have a look around. And when you look who did well that week, they did all right. It's not like they were, it really hindered their performance. So that's the one thing that I'm glad I did when I was younger. I, I saw the places. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned that you were close with Ash there. So what was that like when she won last year at Muirfield? Oh, so proud of her. Like really, like, so, so proud. Like she's the, she's one of our little gang that did it. You know, rest like Stace Keaton, me, Becca, artist, we, you know, we've all retired and she, she kept going like the stalwart that she is. So, um, yeah, really, really proud. I had a tear in my eye to, to see that's the one, 
isn't it the open like even if you're south african like that's the one and i saw her in saudi and we were just chatting about normal things like totally normal things and then i left her and i thought i never said i never said like that was unbelievable da, 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 da. and then the next day we saw each other again and we had a really nice chat about what tour was like when we were younger i mean me and ash i met ash when she was 13 years old so to see what her and dave have kind of built together and in the in the golfing world and now she'll no one can ever take that away from her and her game was actually elevated because of it and yeah just dead proud of her that was really northern wasn't it dead proud of her <laughs> i was gonna say she's, she, she she must be listening so there you go now you've now you've congratulated her on her she, the thing is <laughs> she doesn't better. get big-headed so it's not going to bother her at all yeah and like you say she's getting even better now as well like that that victory out in south africa um, a few weeks ago, absolutely stormed Tom's victory. She was incredible. Yeah, I think her weight's been lifted. Um, think think of Carlotta Zaganda. That, I think if, if it happens to Carlotta, the same will happen. She'll just be a little bit lighter. Because, you know, they've been playing at high... Her and Carlotta have been playing at a very high level since they were 13. So this is 20 years. It's a long time to wait. Yeah, absolutely. Going, going back to yourself, Sophie, just final question on, on my end. Um, on the LET, like, what was your favourite event and why? Or perhaps a memory from an event that made it special? Yeah, t- two. Tenerife was always amazing. Like, being Brits, we love a bit of Tenerife. <laughs> and you could just get in a park, like, a big villa. I always remember it was, like, the week where five or six of us would get together and we'd get a big villa right near the golf course and we'd cook up a storm and eat barbecues food and that that was cool i remember we did come down with me one year every every mm-hmm. night somebody made something or other and um flick johnson's mum taught her how to make spaghetti bolognese so we had that and then dubai dubai was always like mega because look you, you know we've just spoken earlier about events being elevated on the let but the one in Dubai made you feel like you were a tour pro. You'd get, we got given gifts, like we got an iPod. You won't remember these, an iPod. We got given one of them. <laughs> we do remember iPods, Sophie. We are our age. <laughs> yeah, Annika, yeah, Annika would like turn up. Michelle Wee would be there, Lexi Thompson. You were playing on the same course that the men had played earlier in the year. The history behind it. That was cool. I always used to like Dubai, final event of the year. And that was going to be the event I was going to retire at. I was like, that's it. And then the the year it got cancelled, like of all the years, I was like, that just sums it up, really. And speaking of your retirement, when kind of did you make that decision to stop playing? How far in the year did you get? Or was it always at the end of 2018 that you were like, okay? I started planning a two, two, maybe three years before. I, I remember applying for a job at England Golf and Polly Clark, who now helps run the Solheim. She's come a long way since helping me with my CV. So she helped me, or I applied for a job with England Golf. She read, read through and everything. She was like, yeah, it's good, but you know, are you sure you want to do this? I was like, yeah, I think, I think I'm, I'm going to look at jobs. And I sent it off. The week I sent it off, I played amazing in Morocco and like was playing with Trish and Laura, finished fifth or sixth and won. You know, I think the I think the salary for the England job was about 20 grand and I won half of that in Morocco. So Polly's like, do you think you maybe need to reassess this? I was like, yeah, maybe. So I carried on the season and then I thought, no, I do need, I, I think I do need to stop. So that was probably, I think at the start of 2018, that was always going to be my last year. I think I started to apply for jobs in 16, did a little bit of sky work in 17, 18, said, right, I'm going to stop at the end of this year. And guess what? I got in the US Open. It was like every time I said I was going to stop, I started to play well. So there's something in that, isn't there? (laughs) Yeah. And how difficult was it to make that decision? Obviously, you've been playing on your mind with different things, but... When do you know that it's the time? Although, as you said, things keep cropping up, so maybe you never know when the time is. I was at the US Open. It was Tuesday. And I was messaging one of my mates back home. And I said, I should be up for this. I should be really up for this. I was playing great golf. 
and I wasn't and I thought that's not that's not that's not the feeling that I know the feeling that you need to have when you're at these events and I just didn't have it so that was in the June so from the June I knew I'd made the right decision and obviously you did a little bit of sky work as you said the year before were the plans always to kind of go to broadcasting or did you want to keep in golf what what were your aims when you wanted to retire I, if I want, when I retired, I wanted to still love golf. I'd spoke to many people that gave up and never played. <laughs> like, bare, and, and a lot of my mates had been that way. And I thought, I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to, when I leave tour golf, I still want, I still want to love golf. So I think that's why it was important to leave on my terms. I didn't feel like I'd reached my potential playing. And I thought, I need to reach my potential in golf some other way. Mm -hmm. And obviously there's loads of opportunities in, in other ways. I'd started to do a little bit of YouTube uh, a couple of years prior. One of my uni friends works for Your Golf Travel and he'd hooked me up to do some YouTube stuff. Quite like that. One of the first females definitely to, to get involved with YouTube. And then just things started to go from there. I was always a decent like after dinner speaker, I was quite good when I won a trophy. I was decent at giving a speech. At the, like my first bit of retirement, I literally did everything, you know, everything you could even imagine. I was doing beat the pros. I was coaching. I was doing after dinner speaking. I was commentating. I was, you know, done a bit bit with George at National Club Golfer, like anything for free or minimal amount or just whatever and just threw loads of stuff against the wall and just saw what stuck really obviously commentating was one that i was like yeah i'd love to do that but i didn't know she needed to be trained i didn't quite know how to get into it so i just kept trying to find out really and then from then um what was your first experience in the commentary box i did about you know sometimes when the players go in after a round mm -hmm. i did that in spain one year i think it was the year Anne van dam won and then my first full event was Kenya in 2019. Yeah, that was a long way to go. <laughs> it's like, whoa, this is miles. But I was thinking someone else is paying for it. This is amazing. Someone's paying for my hotel and like my airfare. And I'm definitely going to make the weekend. That's a win. <laughs> and what was that like being in that in that box? And obviously quite a dramatic event that one <laughs> lots of stuff going on yeah, to end the it? season yeah. julia engstrom bless her yeah for those of you that don't know i think she had like an eight shot lead and she lost it and then that was quite difficult for me as i'm mates with marianne scarpnord and scarpnord was going to win the order of merit and then little esther just comes out of nowhere and takes it from her so for my first commentary gig that was quite difficult to try and separate emotionally what I felt for Scarpy but then I think it helped because I did have a bit of emotion in there to go wow that's that's really tough and it's funny because you like lost for words and then you think I can't be lost for words of all the people this is not the case so yeah it was, it was good it was it was a baptism of fire because obviously Kenya the event um as in the winner it was all over the place leaderboard wise and you mentioned there in terms of obviously your relationships with the players having played on tour, etc. Do you think that has helped you throughout your career so far? And how do you balance that on different weeks? As you say, with Ash winning and like other things happening, um, how much of, you know, your own life on tour do you use? But also how much do you still speak to the other players? I think that's always difficult because you have to, if, if it's a bad shot, you have to say it. If it's a good shot, you have to say it. I think COVID times really helped me because we were in bubbles and I wasn't allowed to mix with the players at all. I had I had like this misconception that we stayed in the same hotels as the players did as a TV crew and we don't, but because of COVID, we certainly didn't. So there was no way I could mix with them at all. Player dining, like the only time I could see them was actually outdoors on the golf course and even then you know back in the day COVID it was like don't come close I think that helped me separate certainly helped me separate and from there on out I had that many reps under my belt that I knew where I was and the players knew where where I was and now if we are together there's a certain 
like I'll say to them, you know, we're out, for, say, if we go for dinner, I went to, to dinner with Mel the other day, Mel Reed, and it's off the record, you know, we've got a glass of wine in our hand. This is, this is totally off the record. But there could be something she says in there at one point that you go, that'd be quite good. So you might just say to her later on, next time you see her, remember when you told me that? Am I all right to use that? And that they'll go, yeah. So that that's... Yeah, that's it's never easy. It was lovely to watch Amy Bolden win. That was really great. That's that was my first friend that won. <laughs> but actually, watching anybody win, you student, you, you think we sit there and watch every single shot they hit for at least two days, maybe four. You actually you go on that journey with them, like Pauline. I've never met Pauline, and I'm like, oh yeah, love it. Like I was right in straight away. So because you literally live every shot with them for two or four days yeah for sure and obviously things can go wrong with tv is there anything that's ever gone wrong <laughs> with tv with you any funny blunders funny stories that you've had yeah if we, you know we shouldn't reveal what goes on but behind the scenes because obviously as long as the, the show goes out on air then it, all is all is good let's think what have i said oh I've, I've, the time i've pressed to speak to the producer and i've been on air been like are we going to see the next shot and then it's gone on air so that's but i'd like to think that's more dodgy buttons than me <laughs> um once in dubai so every time this is how our day works i'll go out on the golf course look at the pin positions maybe go on the driving range look what, what what's in the bag for a few of the players but i'm out i'm out of the i come in for rehearsal richard is a little bit more kind of based there because he's got to write the opener and he might go down and interview a few players but most of the time he's sat where we um will will go to air and i came back in dubai so we're on at six i come back at about quarter past five and i'm like hey you're all right and then he's like the truck's broke it's like what he's like the truck is broke okay so what happens he's like i don't think we're going on air right and we did go on air this little Emirati guy drove somewhere to pick up a part and brought it back. But we went on air at six o'clock and the truck didn't really get fixed till half six. So we spoke on a scenic and a leaderboard for 25 minutes. That was interesting. The new skill. <laughs> yes. A different skill. Yeah. Because, do you know what, Nicola, we're only on for three or four hours. So it's a nightmare if, if stuff doesn't work and it ends up just speaking. We just speak about stuff because it's not there for us. It's there for someone else isn't it like we want to watch golf we don't want to hear us speak all the time yeah for sure and as you say you just mentioned Amy Bolden winning being one of you know your highlights are there any other favorite moments that you've had on air um Emily Pedersen yeah um because I know Emily again you know it's always that I I know the story of Emily Pedersen and to see I remember I, I did on course commentary at the Scottish and then to see her come through and, and that hybrid shot that she hit in to the last at Saudi will live with me for a long time. And I still can't help saying it when I see her with the hybrid. It's her favourite club in the bag. Remember that shot. Because it was just such an amazing story. And then to see her go on to Solheim and win the then hold the winning putt. Yeah, like when you know what players have been through, it's not it's not you know, look, we live, there's a lot worse things going on in the world, granted. But Emily had been through the mill a bit. So her winning Saudi, that was that was really great to watch. And I also, I did like Maya's win in Germany. The eyes, <laughs> when she starts looking it up and down, up and down, up and down. And then it nearly goes, if that went in, oh God, it would have been amazing. <laughs> well, you would have had two in the final couple of groups with Polly Mac, having done it yeah. a few groups earlier. <laughs> Um, the crowd would have enjoyed it for sure. Um, you mentioned obviously going back to Maya and Grace earlier on, um, coaching and that be, that being something that you do. Um, how much do you enjoy coaching and being able to you know get involved with young girls in the game? And what do you have any advice for young girls about getting into golf? Look, when I first went into coaching, I thought oh, I'm only going to teach elite golfers. I don't understand what it's like not to be good at golf um but it's been totally the opposite i teach all levels of golfers yesterday teaching a, a a woman who was 32 handicap then like a dentist basically 
I've really enjoyed teaching all levels of golf now, which didn't didn't see that happening at all. And actually, you can get bigger wins from teaching higher handicappers than you can from lower handicappers. I also thought, do I have time to teach elite golfers? I know how much they want of me. So I don't think I'll ever teach high level tour players because I know the demands that we put on a coach. But I have enjoyed, I, I do some selecting for England golf and I've enjoyed watching some of the youngsters come through. I went to Delamere Forest at the weekend and was watching, basically they were all under 18. So that that's cool. I have a love for golf and a passion for golf and I am keen to pass that on. And anybody that's, you know, willing to listen from the mistakes that I made, hopefully I can I can pass them on or, you know, like with Gracie the day, I just gave us like loads of my old golf clothes because I was having a clean out and now I now wear Footjoy clothes. So I was having a clean out of all my old stuff. I know how much golf clothes cost. And I know at 14 years old, you're going to be growing. And I would have loved somebody to just go, here you go, here's, here's five tops. And it's like, wow. And it's nothing for me to do that. But I know it's important for for her to... It's hard to get by golf clothes when you're 14. There's, there's nothing around. So it's not loads. Like, I'm not changing the world. But uh, it's, it's, good, it's good watching the youngsters because they, they're channeling, like, what they see, which I don't, I'm not sure I ever did because I didn't see it. Now you watch him, and I still say it to this day, like Maggie Whitehead is Charlie Hull. It's ace. Like she's got the visor, she's got the ball marker, the way she lines up a putt. Like when she, sometimes she did a plum, like, you know, how Charlie does it. I'm like, oh my God, you only do this because Charlie does it. That's awesome. So my advice is love what you do, work hard at it and go for it. I think I think there's a there's a fear in in us females of hitting a bad shot which there's nothing to be fearful of like it's it's our shackles that we put on ourselves if you can just let that go that would be my advice and yeah you know if i'd have taken it i might not be commentating now nicola <laughs> yeah absolutely i think that's a really nice one to end on uh sophie so we could chat absolutely all day i think about golf about your life about let but it's a nice way to wrap it up just finally before we do let you go what's your one prediction for the season it could be anything an English winner of the Women's Open. Yeah, I can't pick. I can't pick which one. I think. I think we can see an English winner. They're all in red hot form, so that's a good one. Yeah, Sophie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome back. Absolutely anytime. It's been been a really good chat, and uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll see you at the next event, even though it's a bit of a bit of a break isn't it yeah it is i think i'm next out in florida okay beautiful i won't be there so i'll be getting a lot of fomo back here again like i was with nicola in south africa <laughs> i was gonna say i will be there <laughs> right amazing stuff guys uh we do hope you enjoyed this episode of the let golf podcast if you did you know the drill please leave us a review on spotify apple or whichever platform you're streaming from and remember to follow us on the socials at let golf thanks for tuning in guys thank you sophie and we'll see you next week Shot. Whoa, how about that? The LET Golf Podcast, the official podcast of the Ladies European Tour.